In today's modern, globalised world, we like to think that we're in control and we're free to make our own decisions. But do we all have the same liberty to determine the directions of our lives? Or are our decisions already shaped for us by our biological makeup or our psychological states or even by a divine plan? Can we ever truly be free to shape our own future? If I'm being honest, I don't know, but I do feel that I could have kind of stopped this journey. I didn't know where I was going to end up, and I certainly didn't choose this. Can I really be free without cultivating what that freedom is? Or do I just have choice within my reaction? So it's not just the sense of human beings having free will, it's also the exercise of that will and the exercise of choice. In this podcast, I speak to three amazing people about their extraordinary lives and the ways the events and experiences they have been through have shaped how they understand what it means to have free will. So I had this power, but it was dark, but I deliberately embraced the darkness. I made a choice to do it even as a child. So when you become dark, it starts to become easier and easier to hurt people. And the darker it gets, the harder your heart gets. So your will's lined up with something dark in the world. In terms of South Africa, when I was growing up, there was this division of racial hierarchy. The interesting context for me is that I have a mixture of both African-American heritage, my mother um, and my father was Indian. So in that experience, my parents' marriage was illegal. So I was classified as an activist. When I was 12, I was still a child. Was I capable of really choosing or not? I'm very conscious of the history of women suffragettes, uh, women lawyers, women doctors. And what I noticed is, though the early ones had to surmount amazing difficulties, they kept coming. And I thought, well, if I don't do it, who else is going to? So I'm very conscious of that idea of be the change you want to see. I'm Holly Morse, and welcome to World of Belief. In this podcast, I seek out fascinating personal stories about how people have experienced for themselves some of the big challenges facing us in the world today. First stop for this episode is Burnley in Lancashire, northwest England. It's a Thursday morning and I'm in an unassuming building in the centre of town. This is Church on the Street HQ and I'm surrounded by people chatting, eating breakfast and making use of the centre's services. Here we are, I guess, inside the church. So we've got the mental health team sat outside talking to the people that are uh, kind of struggling a little bit. We've this got is Pastor Mick, who founded Church on the Street in 2013. In. He's explaining we'll to me the work of the centre, which provides a wide range of support, such as food banks, careers and financial advice and addiction counsellors. Church on the Street is all about freedom. In its own words, it's a place for recovery and the fight for change. This ministry started with me with a suitcase outside McDonald's and in that suitcase was some clothes, some sandwiches, a flask and in my pocket I had a packet of cigarettes and a lighter and uh, I sat down with a homeless guy and I shared the stuff I had and we shared conversation and uh, within two to three weeks there were 50 to 60 people turning up twice a week outside McDonald's in town So it was a church born out of that interaction. I've planted and watered and and God's growing it and now we're in this wonderful building and we've got like all these secular organisations that come in to support the work that we're doing but we don't compromise our faith. One of the things that's really interesting to me is you talk about 
people's relationship with the church here is that faith is something that's transformational that it changes people's lives and obviously this podcast is on the topic of free will so how do you think faith in that context wraps around people's free will so I, I'd say that uh, for myself I have a choice in recovery from drug addiction and alcoholism if I have one drink I can't stop and then I'm robbing people and I'm hurting people my freedom, the love of God that I have inside me, only comes because I choose to align my will with the will of God, because my will doesn't work. And there's a notion in the cross that shows me and tells me that without going too theological, but... Uh, well, so, so I'd say, just on a base level, so people used to say, Jesus died for my sins, this dead fella on this cross, and before I was a Christian or I call, I prefer to call myself a follower of Jesus really anyway to be honest with you it would have been how can he forgive my sins and I don't really care anyway that would have been my definite response because it doesn't make any sense but I had this moment I had a moment in my life where I had a conversion experience but I also had a moment in my thinking where it was like so this Jesus geezer so what he does is he dies on this cross so he goes through the pain if he goes through the pain, and this, he hasn't done all wrong either, so he goes through the pain, and then he comes out the other side alive, fresh, and new. And I thought, and I thought, my word, human beings never go through the pain. I took drugs, slept with loads of women, did loads of horrible stuff, anything to avoid that pain, that emotion. It wasn't till I stopped. And to follow Jesus was I went through the pain of it, emotional, physical and everything else. And it was true. I came out to new life. Pastor Mick's life has been shaped by a number of shocking and tragic events. As a young boy, he was sexually assaulted, bereaved of a beloved sister and involved in a life of crime. Following his traumatic experiences, Mick began dealing drugs and also himself became an addict. It was this tough life that ultimately led him to attempt to take his own life. So I had all this money and all this stuff that I could, so I had this power, but it was dark. But I deliberately embraced the darkness. I made a choice to do it even as a child. I felt like I'd shook the devil's hand, but I liked it. So when you become dark, it starts to become easier and easier to hurt people. And the darker it gets, the harder your heart gets. And you become so self-centered so you your will isn't lined up with god obviously your will's lined up with something dark in the world and that's where i put my will i deliberately did bad stuff now people can say i was mentally ill i probably was was through trauma so i had uh, an incident where uh, i'd gone to collect a debt and I jumped out of the car and this guy walked past with two children and he had hold of the hands, two little girls and there were light shining off the hands the light hit me in 15, 20 seconds that's all but I couldn't breathe I couldn't speak so I had this experience that was been real to me and it's played out of in what I see with the people we help and support now people carry guilt and shame and push it down and pretend and lie to the self and try to wipe it out of the mind or out of the thinking. But it doesn't go away. It affects you and it affects your relationships and it affects other people. I've been fortunate that I was able to see that or it was shown to me 
and I'm, I'm free from that now. I don't carry that anymore, you know, and, and I thank God for that. In that moment when you saw the light kind of shining off of the children's hands as you got out of your car, did that feel like you had a choice or was that a moment where it was laid out for you that your journey was going to change? So the choice was taken away at that point because my choice would have been to do something else and I couldn't understand why I couldn't. So choice was taken out of my hands, but I went with it. You know what I mean? I nearly took my own life because I couldn't cope with the real world, myself and my guilt and everything. But it was taken away from me. Choice was taken away. Then I had a choice. Yeah, there's a kind of combination, isn't there, between a moment which is definitive, but you can do different things with that moment and there are different journeys that kind of lead out from that. And it seems to me that, you know, from that experience, that's also what you're trying to provide. That's also what you aim to provide people here is a similar sort of moment where they go, okay, these are the different paths that I can take. So, yeah, you're right. So what we do here is every excuse is withdrawn when you come in here. So I can't do oat milk because I haven't had oat to eat. Get some food there, that's on. Oh, I'm freezing, I need a brew. That's fine. I'm had a shower, I can't do all, I can't get a job, I can't move forward. Well, go and have a shower in the back and I'll get you some clean clothes. Well, I can't cook when I get home, so we'll put some gas and electric on for you. Yeah, no, but I've got drug problems, we've got a rehab here, we've got programs that we do here, that's fine, yeah. I can go on and on. It's my mental health, Mick, I can't get it, I've got the mental health team in here. Yeah, no, but if you knew what I went through when I was a child, that's fine, come and see the counsellors. In the end, you're only left with yourself and God. And then you can make a decision. This ministry takes the excuses away so that you can choose where you align yourself with the dark or with the light, basically. You know, it kind of fascinates me when Jesus is stood in front of Pontius Pilate and uh, Pilate's, you know, very worldly. And he says, do you not know I've got the power of life and death over you? And he believes that, you know, he believes that. No doubt, and it looks like that in the world. He can just click his fingers and Jesus is alive or dead. And Jesus says, you've got no power over me, only what God's given you. And he's like, wow, you know, where am I going to be? I'm going to be with Pilate and I'm going to stand with Jesus. If you stand with Pilate, it's going to be feasting, nice robes, nice rings, nice girlfriend, maybe even a nice car. Fantastic, but you're going to have no peace and you are going to die. You stand with Jesus, you're going to go through the pain and you're going to get eternal life and come out the other side. So one of the ways that we might think about God's involvement in the world is that there is a plan and that plan is unfolding and humans can't really change that plan, we're just part of it. I wonder how that sort of way of thinking about fate and um, choice and free will maps onto your own religious experience. I don't fully know, if I'm being honest, I kind of, I don't know, but for myself, I, I do feel that I could have gone either way, and at any point, I could have kind of stopped this journey. I didn't know where I was going to end up, and I certainly didn't choose this. I, I couldn't speak in front of people, I couldn't read and write properly, and I've got a degree, you know, I, I can go on and on and on and on. So there's something in the predestination, but... 
I know I could have stopped it because I was so close many times. I felt like there were a hook in my stomach and I was being ripped apart. I've never had pain like it in my life just to not have a drink and not to take a drug. So I do feel I could have gone against God. Where it falls down is it's like, if you knew you were predestined, would you do it different? Or does it mean I can just do what I want? Because God's going to make it right anyway, for me personally. Because it's more me, 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 isn't it? And I don't think the gospel is that. Yeah, I mean, it strikes me that there was something interesting that you were saying there about, you know, in some parts of your life, it's almost like you had no choice in the sense that you had no way of knowing that you'd make it here. It didn't seem like that was going to be an option. But it's almost like the way that you describe your experience is that you're kind of being projected forward towards the... There's something quite prophetic about that in a biblical sense because the prophets often have that experience of kind of a moment of doubt when they're called. They sort of say, oh, please don't choose me. I'm not, you know, Moses says, I've got, a, I can't speak, I can't speak well enough. Why are you choosing me? And that, that's that. what you said there kind of resonated with that for me. So, yeah, I'd agree. Uh, it's kind of, I'm not, I don't know if I'm a prophet or not, who knows, but uh, I would definitely agree. It was, I can't do that. I don't want to do that. I am not doing that. You have to find somebody else. Because they can't be me. You know what I've done. It's been, no, mate. No, I'm going to get you to do that. And then you're going to do this. What? And then you're going to write a book. And then this is going to, and then you're going to be on TV. And then I'm going to send that gospel message around the world. And you know what? Then I'm going to send the future king to have a natter with you. And it's like, you're having a laugh, aren't you? Because I couldn't. I used to be so fearful of speaking in front of people that I would have punched someone in the face rather than speak in front of people. And I suppose it is biblical in a way, it's, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. There's, um, there's some great stuff out there about the prophets in a less sort of supernatural yeah, way, yeah, but yeah. more seeing, especially the Hebrew Bible prophets, yeah. as being social justice yeah. speakers, Massive, you know? talking out against oppression and you know there is quite a lot of resonance again with what you're doing here in that in that reading of what prophets are for yeah Yeah. so so, so prophets are speaking god's word and and god is standing with the poor you know in matthew 25 when when you did it to the least of one of these you did it to me he's like what 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 do you mean so your interaction with loving god and loving neighbor becomes extremely powerful which is old testament and new testament you know, because I could only do it through Christ. I thought it was so worthless that nobody could ever love me, so I wouldn't wear them. I just kept everybody away, so I just I was so lonely and so lost. And now I, I I feel loved because I can let people love me, you know. It's kind of, that's the gift, I think. That's the payoff, isn't it, from loving others. You can allow the love back, you know, what a payoff that, isn't it? As I left Burnley and headed home, sitting on the train with the scenery speeding by, my thoughts kept returning to Pastor Mick's description of feeling called to ministry, despite it being the last thing he was expecting. At the same time, Mick's journey was indisputably shaped by the circumstances of his life and the difficulties of making choices in that situation. I was left reflecting on whether it was always possible for us to act freely, especially when life presents us with challenges, hardships and suffering. This was something I wanted to explore further with Rahina Haralal, activist, psychologist and founding member of Buddhist Across Tradition. We began by talking about her early life growing up in South Africa during the apartheid era. 
in terms of South Africa, when I was growing up, there was this division of racial hierarchy. And the hierarchy was pretty much white and then the colored, which was a which was a combination of white and black or African, and then the Indian. And so the history of it is a mixture of both colonization with Indian indentured labor um, and in Indian enslavement. So along with all of that. The interesting context for me is that I have a mixture of both African-American heritage, my mother um, and my father was Indian. So in that experience, my parents' marriage was illegal. And the the enforced hierarchy also created tensions between African and Indian and how people identified in terms of political activism. So given my parents' background, I would say there was little choice I had in getting involved in activism. Firstly, because of my parents' involvement and engagement, but all the same time being educated in a way to understand the oppression and repression that was happening in South Africa. And on the third level, my choice to engage in this was determined by not just my parents' choice, but how the state at the time and the regime at the time defined who I was on the basis of my parents. So I was classified as an activist. When I was 12, I was still a child. Was I capable of really choosing or not? As you're kind of describing your early life experience and the kind of intersecting issues to do with a range of different oppressions that were kind of part of that society, that structure, that state, that regime. At the same time, using the language of activism, which is about action and activity and um, participation, I suppose, is there a kind of tension between the kind of lack of freedoms, the oppression, but at the same time, something within your own self that was about agency and action? So if I have to say that in the pure Buddhist terms, in terms of my activism, I was not totally free. My relationship, my reaction was not action. It was a reaction to the situation that I found myself in. Did I have a choice within that limited context in which I was operating? Yes. So for me, the concept of free will means have I got the ability to discern when I'm reacting what are the various causes and conditions that are triggering my choice? And can I really be free without cultivating what that freedom is? Or do I just have choice within my reactions? Um, so that's the first thing. The second thing is, I would say, you know, I could have made a choice that I'm not going to engage in this because of this, 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 and this reasons, my safety, my protecting my siblings, whatever or those reasons could be, I could have made a choice. But at the same time, because of my parents' engagement, my choice was pretty narrow in the sense of irrespective of what I did, I would have still been seen as an activist or with a view of suspicion because the way we view and clasp onto identity is on the basis of one previous experience. The second is, if I have to look at it from a Buddhist concept, I would say it was not free. I was not free because actually anger overrode me. These emotions, these feelings of being substandard, of not being human, of doing all of those things, you know, anger, 
for me, you know, I would say kept me alive because if it wasn't for the anger, I would have been passive and probably died because it gave me an alertness. It gave me the adrenaline. But was I free or was I reacting to the anger? So my action was based on that feeling. It was a reaction rather than a real sense of discernment. And that, I think, is where the Buddhist concept comes in, which is as long as we're driven by emotions, we are not really free. You know, in South Africa, there's a Zulu concept called we are, therefore I am, which is the concept of everything inter-exists with everything else, that my humanity is defined by yours as a community. So the more inhuman I am, it actually defines the inhumanity of the society because we co-create. My existence, our conversation is based on something that we're co-creating. I exist because you see me. And so the third dimension of the freedom is as an activist, we also think our identity gets really closed because it gets narrower and narrower. So what happens is we clasp onto this identity of activism. An activist does this, 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 and this, behaves in this, 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 and this way, and I can only do this because that's the permanent characteristics. I am an activist. It defines who I am. The reality of it is I'm more than that. It's such a fascinating line of conversation because I suppose in, you know, in, in many ways what we're talking about is about internal and external definitions of, of self and how that relates then to sort of freedom, liberty, the ability to make choices. You know, and, and I wonder if there's any parallels in what you're saying between both external state definitions around race and ethnicity and expectation and then also external definitions around activism and expectation. And, you know, how do we begin to think about ourselves in terms of our identity and our freedom outside of those kind of socially constructed norms or regulatory structures? So I'm going to take a stab at that because that's a, a, a complex question. The tighter we stick to what is a fixed identity of myself as a permanent, unitary, unchanging person, the more narrower and the less control we have in terms of freedom. And I don't mean freedom to act the way we are, because in, in reality, in our society, we are conditioned. We are conditioned by language. I mean, the very fact that you and I are having a conversation means that we're conditioned. Otherwise, I would be speaking French. The freedom of the internal and external is that the external, we co-create. And so if we look at something like race, we cannot separate this narrative of race from the narrative of what has happened in the historical context in Europe. So if I look at the UK in particular because of the British Empire, what I see is a class issue, a landed gentry holding on to land, power, committing atrocities on the majority of the British people who were working class. And ultimately, it is about greed. It is about access to resources. It is about power in a specifically defined sense of what power might mean. Um, and that was meted out 
all around the world. And Zen master Thich Nhat Hanh, who's who's worked a lot in looking at some of this, you know, and bringing and modernizing Buddhism in in the West, really, um, and nominated just a bit of context, nominated by Martin Luther King for the Nobel Peace Prize. He actually says the journey in is the journey out. Because it's really when we start understanding our own pain and our trauma, when we start looking at our identity and how constrained we are in terms of that identity, and that you know, who are you actually? When we start really looking at that, who are you? Are your arms? Are your legs? Who are you? You know, or who controls your behavior? You know, is there a puppet master, and is it your mind? What is it? that you realize that actually you are a composition of many different things in that way you are empty of a separate self not a nihilist but empty of your separate self so part of that internal healing is to actually look at your identity and explore some of those dimensions how fixed is it who am i what is determining my actions is it my emotions what is that story behind that you know where am i getting the story from but the reality is when we see who we are and that my dependence is on you then our activism is different we there to serve humanity yeah and there's a kind of dialectic process there isn't there that you're talking about which is that we are created by culture by history but that is in the immediate in the present that's not something that we're detached from but it's also something that we in our lives as we live are producing daily so you know there is both limited agency in that kind of dialectic process but also at the same time the possibility for change and and for choice and so that it there is some kind of tension there all the time isn't there and that will be different from people coming from different social contexts from different racial backgrounds from different ethnic backgrounds from different classes so i think there's something really kind of powerful about this theme of tension between already being in a system which needs to be changed but that is also constructing us and yet at the same time being able to move forward and outside of that yes i i totally agree and i think for me there's a word called discernment and some people call mindfulness but that is us becoming aware of what it is that is actively influencing us because otherwise we are walking around in a dream in a state really where there are triggers that we reacting either because we angry and we react or we reacting on the basis of a story or a narrative and not realizing that in that way we don't have free will so when we discern we can actually then make a choice oh i can see that this has happened as a result of this 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 and this i can see that i'm angry right now and i don't need to react in this way so that discernment gives us and widens our choice when we realize as part of that discernment that i am not an independent unitary self that my actions are created through various causes and conditions history being one of them but then the more i understand that the more i can actually choose how i react and so i become more aware become more conscious of what the implications might be and that i guess in the buddhist term could be called insight yeah and talking about being present mindful in the moment and what that means in terms of relationship to past and present it's not that it's erased but it's just about which ones we prioritize in terms of our activity and our thoughts yes i think there is a question of priority but actually do we really prioritize there's quite a lot of external 
seduction and pressure as to what to be. Because I think we all kind of navigate the world desiring something or wanting to be part of something as part of a collective. It can be unwholesome and it can cause us unhappiness, even though the intention is for happiness and, con and contentment. Uh, but the reality of it is we cannot, I, this body cannot change society. I can only play part of a role in doing what I can. And therefore, that letting go is important because as long as I hang on to, I am going to change the world, I've elevated my I um, into my ego. I'm superior. Oh, look, it's all dependent on me. And, um, and then I can become very unhappy. I have despair. Uh, you know, I get angry. Um, all of those elements come into place. And our societal narrative actually reinforces that. Because if we look at all the heroes or heroines or hero people that we have, it's always someone saving the world. It's Superman. It's Batman. It's Wonder Woman. It's whatever. But the reality of it is that person cannot exist without us. I mean, a leader cannot be a leader without followers. And secondly, it undermines the notion that we are all interdependent human beings. Trump, to be a millionaire, could not have been a millionaire without what has happened in his family. He did not do it by his own means. There were various conditions and people and actions that led to him being in that place. And I guess that's where our cultivation is needs to go. You know, have I really done this on my own? And you find that no, someone's fed you, someone's clothed you, the food is coming from somewhere. So how can you be independent? Hearing Rahina speak about the ways in which identities, both the ones we create for ourselves and the ones that are created for us by others, shape our identities of free will, left me thinking, in what ways have different religions' ideas about identity influence people's experience of freedom and choice? So, to finish the podcast, I head off to meet Rabbi Dr. Lindsay taylor Gutards. In 2021, Lindsay became one of a small but growing number of women globally who have been ordained as Orthodox rabbis, a role which for centuries had only been open to men. But things are changing, and I was curious to learn more about the journey that led Lindsay to her groundbreaking decision, beginning with her childhood in Cornwall. I come from a, a very peculiar family that actually tried to hide its Jewish origins. I'm not even sure why. It could be due to the anti-Semitism that many Jews in Britain encountered, especially around the First World War. So I grew up with no knowledge at all of Judaism, and I grew up in Cornwall, which is not famed for its huge quantities of Jews even today. So again, I made a very conscious choice when I was about ooh, 12, 13. I read everything I could about Judaism. I taught myself to read Hebrew out of a teach yourself to read biblical Hebrew book. And the more I read, the more I decided, yes, this is a wonderful tradition. And um, I, yes, by the time I got to university, I knew, yes, that's what I want to do. And I have been active in the orthodox feminist world, uh, which does exist. So I've done things like uh, learning to chant the Torah in synagogue in uh, the traditional chant. I try to increase my own involvement in Jewish study and Jewish learning, which is very central in Judaism. I've taken on various ritual roles at home. And this, in a way, is, is the next step. So I very much wanted to push this project forward. And again, I'm, I'm very conscious of the history of women suffragettes, uh, women lawyers, women doctors. And what I noticed is, uh, though the early ones had to surmount amazing difficulties, they kept 
coming. And I thought, well, if I don't do it, who else is going to? So I'm very conscious of that idea of be the change you want to see. Following your ordination, what kind of responses did you get? Aha, <laughs> that's where it gets complicated. <laughs> so uh, one of the places I teach is the London School of Jewish Studies. So I did tell them when I started the course and uh, the college uh, leaders were a little bit worried because they knew there would be political implications. And uh, at that point, uh, the chief rabbi uh, dismissed me from my post. Um, however, the college said, well, look, she's only started, you know, it often happen. And I was reinstated. But unfortunately, three years later, just before I graduated, the chief rabbi, who had obviously been keeping tabs, um, ejected me from my post again. And then there was uh, quite a bit of a media storm. Uh, the upshot was that I was reinstated. Uh, what I wasn't expecting was a huge groundswell of support, actually. And some very, very surprising people did ring up and say, I, you don't ever tell anyone that I phoned you, but I'm on your side, uh, which was lovely. And in fact, nobody directly said anything horrible. And I got the sense that the community is ready for this sort of change. Maybe you can help us, our audience, to understand why it's so controversial in the Orthodox world. There is a spectrum of denominations in Judaism. And most of them really developed uh, in the 19th century. Before that, Judaism was much more organic in a very pre-modern way. And they range from liberal and reform on the left to orthodoxy further right, and then perhaps beyond that, the ultra-orthodox or the Haredi world. So in most of them, change starts on the left side, you could say, on the liberal reform side, and then gradually spreads across the spectrum, uh, encountering hiccups along the way. In orthodoxy, change is something that has to be considered very carefully. People take the legal system very seriously indeed and will disagree a lot on its implementation and how it should be interpreted. And that's all caught up with sociological aspects of how your community expects to live its life, what the community feels acceptable, what has always been done, what people are used to. So you have all sorts of factors coming together here. Traditionally, Orthodox women have been active, particularly in the home, and they don't have much public role in synagogue. They don't read prayers. They don't uh, read the Torah, the first five books of the Bible in public. They don't give sermons. That has been changing for some time. Uh, again, traditionally, women didn't have much of a Jewish education. That was very much a male thing. But again, uh, certainly starting in the early 20th century and increasing as that went on, women have had more and more access to Jewish education. And in the 1980s, there was a positive explosion of women's religious education, particularly in Israel. And I should perhaps explain that the role of a rabbi is not a sacramental role as it is in Christianity for many Christian denominations. It gives you the ability to make decisions on matters of Jewish law. And that really doesn't have a ritual aspect to it. So from my point of view, there is no reason why a woman couldn't be a rabbi. But for other people, it's much more about what is the appropriate role for a woman. And maybe women should be more concerned with the domestic and much less with public roles. I, I guess thinking about the kind of theme of free will, something that you've made a choice to do, which is an empowerment. And also, as you say, something that is about change and providing more choice. The response to that being a restriction of choice, but 
there's something to unpack there about how tradition and lived experience kind of speak to one another in real terms. Yes, and, and there are so many issues, you know, everything from LGBTQ to environmentalism, uh, like all religions, Judaism is struggling with issues of the moment and how to respond to them. And in all movements, yes, there is this contrast between what do the sources say, what do our sources of authority say, and how do we interpret and adapt and implement that in the changing present. So free will, I think, also comes into this in the way in which people choose to relate to the sources, the sources of authority they choose to accept, how you understand your relationship to a fairly authoritarian system. There are definitely do's and don'ts in, in Judaism, a lot of positive and negative commandments. But again, the very existence of commandments implies free will. And I suppose what the arguments are about are how you exercise that free will or where the limits of free will are or what elements involve free will and what which don't. Okay, maybe we could pick up on that. So I suppose one of the things that you hinted to earlier, and it's, it's kind of been running through our chat, is that within Orthodox Judaism, women have had a kind of particular set of roles with variation that will change geographically and historically. But, you know, by and large, you mentioned that it broadly within the home. And so I guess I wanted to kind of ask whether that means that some people have a different type of free will than other people? Well, again, um, it's not that I undervalue the traditional roles. The provision of a safe, loving space in which to grow a family is one of the most important jobs anyone could do. I'm just not sure that they should be constrained by gender. So um, Judaism has traditionally revolved around the, the twin poles of the home and the synagogue. And I really wouldn't want to devalue one or the other. What I would want to do is perhaps say that people have more free will, more choice in how they choose to participate in each of those. And those choices, the exercise of people's free will is definitely being highlighted in a way that it, it just wasn't in the pre-modern world. People were perhaps less uh, given fewer opportunities to think about what they wanted to choose. And people were generally given fewer opportunities to choose overall. And that doesn't just go for Jews. Again, that's, as we know, all societies. So the, the provision of more choice, the, the possibility to exercise your free will, has had huge knock-on impacts for all religions, definitely to do this. I'm Holly Morse, and you've been listening to World of Belief. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please subscribe and be sure to check out our other episodes. Thanks to the School of Arts, Languages and Culture Social Responsibility Fund for supporting the project. This podcast was produced by Amanda Hancocks and this is a University of Manchester production.